John 18, 1 to 12. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often uh, met there with his disciples. So Jesus, Judas came to the garden, guiding the detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. When Simon Peter, sorry, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. For many people, when they think of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, they see him there as a powerless victim when he dies. And so all they see in his death is something which is a great tragedy and a great loss. Now that is because, sadly, their understanding of Jesus has been put together perhaps from things they heard in RE lessons at school, maybe from religious documentaries they've watched on TV, maybe from visits to ancient churches and things they've inferred from what they've seen there. But few have read the whole of Jesus' life story in one of the Gospels. And it's because they haven't seen the whole picture of all that Jesus did in his life, and particularly the events that led up to Jesus' death on the cross, that they come to that conclusion that as he suffered and died, he did so as a powerless victim. But of course, one of the striking things about the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is that they don't present him in that way, as a powerless victim. In fact, as you read these accounts in detail, what we find is that Jesus is not put forward as someone who has suddenly uh, made a mistake and so found himself captured, arrested, crucified, and gone in that sense. The gospel accounts present a different story. Because as we look at the final hours of Jesus' life, 
we see that as he goes to the cross, he goes to the cross as the king of the universe. He goes to the cross in total and absolute control of what is happening. In that way, what we've been seeing as we've been working through the Gospels doesn't change as we come to the events of Jesus' death. Because as we work through John's Gospel, what have we seen again and again and again? We have seen that Jesus is the God-man. That his miracles and his teaching all point forward to that. And as we come here to the final hours of Jesus' life, nothing has changed. He is the king of the universe going to his cross. And so he doesn't die because he's lost control of the situation. He dies because this is what he came to do. He dies because he is working out a great and glorious plan of redemption, of salvation. And it's so important that as we come to these final moments before Jesus' death, and we're going to work through them in detail in the next few weeks, that we do not think that Jesus is dying as a powerless victim. Because if we believe that, we will never come to find eternal life in his name. Because what happens as Jesus died is that he is working out this amazing plan of salvation that began in eternity past and in time was being worked out in his death on the cross. And if we can see that Jesus is totally in control of what's happening and therefore willingly going to fulfill a great plan of God then we'll come to see Jesus' death correctly. And we will come to know by faith in him the blessings of peace with the God of heaven. Friends, we're going to look through this morning at those verses that Andy read in verses 1 to 12 of John chapter 18. And we're going to look at the events of Jesus' arrest. And as we do that, we will see Jesus acting with divine courage We will see Jesus demonstrating divine power. We will see Jesus exercising that divine power in divine care for his own. Because as we come to the end, we'll see that Jesus is working out this great and glorious divine plan of salvation. And as we look at these things, my prayer for us all is that we might truly believe that he is the Son of God, the God-man who comes from heaven to earth, And understand, therefore, the eternal life-giving significance of his death for all those who believe. I don't have any slides this morning. I just have four simple things that, God willing, will help us to see the significance of the events in this passage. And the first is this. Divine courage. Divine courage. Look with me at verses 1 to 4. Because as we work through these verses, we see that Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him over the next few hours. And yet he willingly faces arrest with this great determination and courage. Jesus has been targeted by his enemies before. When he challenged them in the temple courts, they had tried to kill him by stoning him back in John chapter 8. But we read there that he slipped away. So we know that Jesus is perfectly able to avoid any trouble that he needs to. 
But here, notice that Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he faces head-on his opponents who are coming to arrest him. And in fact, he makes it very easy for them to do that. We read in verse 1 that, that Judas having left to go and betray Jesus to the Jewish leaders, Jesus then moves to a perfect location where he can be found because he crosses over the Kidron Valley He leaves the city of Jerusalem and comes to a garden. And you could not plan a better place for his arrest. It's night. So all the crowds have disappeared and they're not with him. It's a secluded place. He's in a garden away from the city. It's almost probably an enclosed garden because when they came to the garden, we read at the end of verse 1 that Jesus and his disciples went into it. And that suggests this probably was some kind of a walled garden, enclosed garden, which of course will limit his options for escape when they come for him. And this is a known place to Judas, who is going to lead them to arrest Jesus. Verse 2, we're told that Jesus, Judas knew this place because Jesus has often met with his disciples there. So this is the perfect place for Jesus to be found and arrested. But in his arrest, please do not think that Jesus has made a really bad move and now he's been caught because he's just got it wrong. That is not what was going on here. The Lord Jesus Christ is in total control. This is not a surprise to him. And he steps forward to face his arrest with divine courage, with great courage. Now we see that most clearly in how Jesus responds to his enemies when they arrive. Look at verse 4. We read, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Now that phrase, knowing all that was going to happen to him, should make us pause and think everything that's included in that statement. Everything that was going to happen to him. What does that mean? Well, friends, that means the bone-breaking strikes of their clubs that were going to come upon his body. That means the blood-drawing stroke of the whip that was going to cause him great pain. That means he knows about the nails they will drive through his hands and his feet. That means he knows the pain of a slow death upon the cross. But most of all, friends, that means he knows the spiritual suffering he will face as he is lifted up to bear the punishment for the sins of his people. And yet, yet he goes forward to his enemies with divine courage. It's astonishing, isn't it, when we think of all that he knows? And he steps forward to face it. And in one sense, as we see this, we should be moved with awe and wonder and praise that Christ would have this courage to go forward as the God-man. But also we should connect this courage in Jesus' humanity to the plan that is being worked out. Because humanly speaking, where does courage come from like this? Well, one way it comes about is by knowing that your sacrifice will bring about something very, very great. 
This week, I listened to the story of a veteran Royal Marine commando who joined the Royal Marines at age 16 with a group of six friends in the middle of the Second World War. And after training, the first mission they were sent on was to join in the D-Day landings in Normandy in 1944. Now, they knew it would be incredibly hard to take that beach. Only two of the six friends survived the landing on the beach, and one of them lost an eye and a leg in the process. And they asked him this question, why did you do it? Why were you willing to go? And he said, for the little ones, so that they could have freedom in the generations to come. Strong courage in the face of enormous challenges comes from knowing that your sacrifice will bring about something very great. And that, friends, is Christ's confidence here. As he steps forward, he knows that his sacrifice, what he is going to do, everything he is going to go through is a part of the great plan of God. But we see something else here that points to this divine plan. We see divine and great courage. But then secondly, we see divine power in verses 3 to 6. Because Christ's death, and or Christ's arrest, I should say, isn't due to a moment of weakness or miscalculation. In the very moments of his arrest, he shows divine power. Because you read of here, Jesus' enemies coming for him. There in verse 3, John refers uh, to a detachment of soldiers. Now, he's using a particular word there in the Greek for a detachment of soldiers, which indicates the group was probably between 200 and 600 men. It's a particular phrase that indicates that. So you have a, at least 200 men coming to arrest Jesus. They're coming with weapons, just in case there's any trouble. They're coming with torches and lanterns, just in case they try and hide in the garden in the midst of the trees. And as we read this, we think, well, this is astonishing. It, it's, a, it's an overwhelming show of force, isn't it? They're coming to arrest a carpenter from Nazareth, supported by a small band of followers who are mainly fishermen with no military training. It seems totally disproportionate, does it not? Or is it? Because when they declare that they want Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus replies, middle of verse 5, I am he. I am he. Now, now, to make sense of the words there in the Greek, our translators, and understandably so, have added the word he. But literally in the Greek, Jesus says, I am. Now, when we see that, what does that do for us? Well, it starts off firing off all kinds of amazing connections, doesn't it? Because we think we have heard Jesus say that of himself before. In John's gospel, in fact, in the incident we talked about earlier when they were going to stone Jesus... Why do they want to stone him there in the temple? Why? Because he had said this before Abraham was, I am. And this phrase, I am, is a claim to be God. That is God's name. And they know that. That's why they want to stone him, because they see it as blasphemy. 
Now, we know it's God's name because God has used that title of himself about 1,500 years before these events. Because when he appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and tells Moses to go and lead the Israelites there to rescue his people from Egypt. And Moses says, well, who should I say has sent me? What does God say? I am has sent you. Tell them I am has sent you. So this I am is God's name. And just so we don't miss it, it's used three times of Jesus in this passage. So the way Christ identifies himself to his enemies is a claim to be God. But then you might say, well, those are just words. How do we know Jesus really is the God-man? Well, read on and we see, because as we read on in verse 6, we find that Christ shows this, because we're told that when Jesus said... Sorry, verse five, no, sorry, verse six. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now you might say, perhaps that was because, well, perhaps that was because they were surprised that Jesus was willing to be arrested, knowing what they were going to do to him. Maybe. Or you might say, his courage shocked them. Really? doesn't explain it, does it? Because they all fall to the ground. We know it takes a lot to shock a hardened soldier, and there are at least 200 hardened soldiers here. That's not what's going on. What's going on is this. This is Christ with his divine power pushing them back and then to the floor. It is, as one commentator puts it, as if they have been overcome by a greater army. A more powerful force has come. And friends, just think of it here. It's as if the whole of the world as they knew it has come to arrest the Lord Jesus. Who have you got? Well, you've got the Jewish leaders representing the the powers of Jerusalem. Their representatives are there. You've got the Roman soldiers representing the power of the greatest empire the world had ever seen to that point. There, stood there. And of course, you've got Judas, whom Satan has stirred up. What is he doing? He's representing the powers of evil. So you've got the powers of Jerusalem, the powers of Rome, the powers of evil. And they're all there on the floor. Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it but why does Jesus show his divine power here it's so that we might understand that at any moment in everything that is happening here in these moments he could have stopped it And not just this, he could have stopped everything that was going to happen to him in the hours to come. And the only reason, the only reason he lets them do it, because what they're going to do serves a greater purpose and a greater plan. Friends, please do not look at Jesus and see a weak victim here. See divine courage. See divine power. But one of the saddest things is that people see Jesus' power and they don't believe. 
their hearts are stubborn. And so they hold on to their beliefs contrary to the evidence before them. We see that even in the passage here because Jesus gives his enemies a second go at the question. He asks them exactly the same question twice. He says, who is it that you want? And he says, I am he. And then he asks them again when they've been felled to the floor. He says, who is it that you want then? And how do they respond? They respond to the same title as before, Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's correct, but it's only half the picture, isn't it? They have just been on the floor because of his power, and yet he is still just a man from Nazareth to them. They hold on to their beliefs, even when they are contrary to the evidence. And can I just say to you this morning, friends, don't make the same mistake as they do. Too many people see the power of Jesus, understand that he is the Godman if they would make the link from his power, but they hold on to their other belief that he's just a man contrary to the evidence. They don't follow the evidence. They deny the evidence. But what we're seeing here is that Christ's divine power confirms Christ's divine person, that he is the God-man who has come into this world. Do you see that, friends? And if you come to trust him by faith, then all that divine power will be exercised towards you to provide the third thing we see. Because we've seen divine courage, we have seen divine power, but then thirdly we see in verses 7 to 9, divine care. Divine care. Jesus' great power is at work to protect his own. Jesus' repeating of the question to the soldiers as to who they're looking for serves another purpose as well, because what it does is it keeps the focus on Jesus, doesn't it? It keeps the focus on him rather than disciples. And so when they name him again, Jesus says to them, verse 8, I'm the one that you're looking for. I am he. Let these men go. Now notice three things that are striking about Christ's actions and words there in his divine care. The first is this, that Jesus saves his own through substitution. Christ's actions in saying, take me, And let them go is an amazing picture of something right at the heart of the cross of Christ. And that is the principle of substitution, where Jesus, the innocent one, the one who didn't deserve to die, goes to the cross in our place so that we can be let go. And if you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, we're delighted you're here. But please see... That the cross at its heart is about substitution. It means that those who believe in Christ by faith are forgiven and freed. We deserve to go to the cross. That is where we should go because we are sinners in thought and in word and in deed, as Ian explained to us in the bite-sized tree slots. And we need somebody else to die for us. We need somebody else to be our substitute. And here, Christ pictures what he is going to do in just a few hours for those who will believe in his name. So we see Jesus saves his own through substitution, but we also see that in this amazing divine care that Jesus commands the protection of his own. Isn't it striking that Jesus doesn't request 
that the disciples might be left alone. He doesn't say, please leave them alone or ask that they be left alone. What does he say? He commands it. He says, let them go. It's not a request, it's a command. And Jesus will use his divine power to command all the forces of evil to keep their hands off his own people. Before his enemies try to bind Jesus' hands, he will bind theirs to stop them from touching his disciples. What comfort that should give us this morning, friends, that if we are trusting in Christ, then he will exercise all his divine power to provide divine care for us. He will command the spiritual forces of evil to leave us alone because we are his. And they will. We see a principle of substitution. We see Christ in his, in his care for his disciples, in commanding their protection. But then also we see that Jesus' promise never fails. Look at verse 9 with me. Here we're reminded that in Jesus commanding the protection of the disciples and the soldiers' obedience to that command fulfills, and note the words, fulfills the words that Jesus had spoken. I, will not, I have not lost one of those you have given to me. Now, as we've worked through John's gospel, we have got used to hearing about fulfillment, haven't we? But the kind of fulfillment we've heard most about as we've gone through the gospel is of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. But here, it's slightly different because it's not Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. What does John say is happening? Whose word is being fulfilled? Jesus' word is being fulfilled. What's the point? The point is this, that Christ has such power and Christ exercises such care for his own that he can fulfill everything he promises for his people. He can fulfill everything he says he will do. And that is what he said he will do. Back in John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand, speaking of his own people. What does he do here? He uses his power to fulfill that very promise. Now, friends, that should be incredibly encouraging to us this morning because it shows us that as we think of all the many things that Christ has promised to us as his people and as our hearts and our doubts wonder if those promises will fail, what does it show us? That Christ has power to keep every promise of his word. Every promise. So you and I can trust him for all of eternity because he will use his divine power to fulfill those promises in my life and in your life too. This principle of Christ fulfilling his promise is what's well, a bit like a, a, a security blanket in which we can wrap our lives. And we can wrap ourselves in it knowing total security because our Saviour will not fail us. And we can rest, therefore, on every promise he gives to us. We can say to our doubts and our unbelief, be gone. Because the fulfillment of those promises rests upon a Saviour who has great power. So we've seen Christ's divine power caring for his own. 
We have seen his divine care at work in that sense, and we've seen him step forward with divine courage. But now as we close, let's come to the final thing. Courage, power, care. Fourthly, divine plan. Divine plan, verses 10 through to 12. And as we come to verse 11, we come to what is the very center of this passage. Because here, Jesus confirms that he is no victim. That he is in control and fulfilling the divine plan of God. But before we get there, and in contrast, let's just see what Peter does there in verse 10. What does Peter do? Well, Peter does what Peter does quite a lot, which is he gets in the way and he gets it wrong. Because Peter here tries to resist the soldiers and the religious leaders, and he uses his sword to try and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Now, it's a little detail, but did you notice that the injured servant is named here? And there are only a few people named in this passage. You have Jesus, you have Peter, you have Judas. So why would John choose at this point to name Malchus when there are hundreds of other people in this passage who remain nameless? Well, one reason for that is so that we could check the detail he's sharing with others. You know, in our day, fact-checking is big business, isn't it? Social media companies employ people who will go out and check whether the facts in popular posts really have happened. And in providing the name of the servant who is injured here, who works for a well-known person in Jerusalem, the high priest, what is John doing? Well, well John is, is welcoming a fact check. He's saying to his original readers, go and speak to him. Or he's saying to those who come later, go and check the records and you'll find that the high priest had a servant called Malchus. In that way, he is welcoming a kind of verification, a kind of fact check. And you don't do that unless you are confident you are sharing something that is true and you're happy for others to check it. John is signaling here that he is not writing a fairy story where he's made up the details He's not writing an account based on Chinese whispers where he might be nervous that detail could have been lost because it had been passed from person to person to person to person. He's prepared to name a detail, the name of the high priest's servant, because he is writing a gospel based on eyewitness testimony. And you and I can trust, therefore, what he writes. But that's a little detour. Let's come back to Peter's defiance here. We've noticed his defiance of the soldiers, his defiance of the religious leaders. But of course, there's one further person he's defying, which is far more significant, isn't it? He is defying the Father's plan for Jesus' life. And that's what what Jesus confirms in verse 11. The reason Peter needs to put away his sword is that everything that is happening here is something that God is doing. Where Christ will drink the cup the Father has given to him. That's what he refers to there in verse 11. What is this cup? Well, this cup is the wrath of God against sin. Whenever in the Gospels there's a reference to the cup Jesus will drink, he is pointing to the cup of the wrath of God that is going to be taken by the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. It's a picture of judgment. And so, Jesus, Peter, 
all the disciples must not resist by fighting or fleeing because in all of these events, God is working out a divine plan. Now notice, friends, that isn't it striking here that when Jesus speaks of everything that's going to happen to him, he speaks of it as drinking the cup of the wrath of God. He doesn't say, put away your sword because I need to let these men arrest me. He doesn't say, put away your sword because I need to be killed by them. No. He puts it in terms of what the Father is doing in all of this. And again, he's driving home this point. It is God's divine plan. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Because what matters most is not what will be done to Jesus by the hands of men. What matters most is what will be given to Jesus by the hand of his Father when he drinks the cup of God's wrath against our sin. And that's the point, friends. This is God's plan. And so we see again Christ, the God-man, in control of all that's happening because a divine plan is being worked out. Now, friends, as we close, let's come to verse 12 and notice two great ironies. Now, forgive me, Andy, I didn't ask you uh, to, I didn't talk to you about the reading, and you you stopped just before the end of the verse, Uh, and actually, those three words are going to be significant in a moment, but notice two great ironies in verse 12 as we come to the end, that we see as we have caught something of the shape of this passage and the things that are going on, because the first thing that happens that's significant in verse 12 is we read the only reference to the commander of the detachment of the Roman soldiers. He only comes up here. He's not mentioned before. Why would that happen? Well, because it makes us ask a key question when we read about the commander. Who's in charge of all this? Is it the Roman commander? Well, not really. He's only come onto the scene mentioned in verse 12. Is it the high priest officials? No, not them. Is it Judas or even Satan? No, not any of them. Who is the true commander in all of this? It's Christ. It's God. He's the one who is overseeing all that is happening. And that's the great irony, that he's the commander. And then the second one is in those final three words of verse 12. And if you have a Bible, look with me at them. What do we read? They bound him. They bound him. Did they? Did they really bind him? Well, they might have been the ones who wrapped the ropes around his hands. But have they really overcome him? If the Romans had brought every soldier in every army in the entire Roman Empire, it would not have been enough to overcome the Lord Jesus Christ. Such is his power. The great I am has overcome them. They have not bound him. He has submitted to their plan and allowed them to arrest him through their actions because in the midst of it all, he is working out his plan with divine power with divine courage to offer divine care for his own by securing 
their eternal life. So as we come to close, can I suggest two things that we might take away in application from this passage, friends? Two big things. And the first is this. What great assurance all we've seen should give us as believers. That if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything about our eternity is secure. Because if Jesus was in control of everything that happens through the events up and leading to his death on the cross, then surely we can be confident that he is also in control of the results of his death. If he can have this majestic control over everything that happens to him leading up to his arrest and death, then surely, friends, he is also in control of all that it means for us. But we say, well, well, I believe, but I've not lived well this week. I believe but I've not prayed as well as I could have this week. Friends, if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his. You are united to him by faith. Your entire salvation is his work. He controls it all. And so it's secure in him. Doesn't that speak to our doubts and our fears? Sinclair Ferguson captured it so well when he says this, my security as a Christian does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my Saviour. Press that home to your hearts. The next time the devil wants to say to you as a believer, you're not a Christian, go to John 18, see his power at work, And think, if Christ controls all of this, surely he also is sovereignly in control of my salvation. What assurance it gives us. And then, friends, ever so briefly, how that should lead us to great praise as Christians. What courage our Saviour has. What power he displays. What self-sacrificial care for his own. What a wonderful saviour is Jesus. And so we can only respond and respond to sing with William Gadsby. Oh, that my soul would love and praise him more. His beauty's trace, his majesty's adore. Live near his heart's. Upon his bosom lean, obey his voice, and all his will esteem. Let's pray just before we sing. Our Lord and our God, how we thank you for our great and glorious and mighty Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. How we bless you that he was willing to go through all that he did to bring about that glorious plan of salvation. Who are we, Lord God, 
that we should benefit. But we praise you and we bless you that through faith and by your grace, that salvation is ours. So accept our praise as we bring it. Receive our thanks. And may Christ have the glory in our lives today and indeed every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.